0: Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want.
1: Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. It's Give the People What They Want brought to you from People's Dispatch. That's Zoe and Prashant. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. It's the 24th of February. This is the 116th show. This is an important date because it's the anniversary of the... Um, well, what does one even call it? The special operation is what the Russian call, call their entry into Ukraine. Um, the Europeans and the U.S. and the Ukrainian government call it a war. In Bangalore, India, the G20 is meeting where the Indian draft on um, the G20 communique, the final communique, calls it a crisis. Um, the French and the Germans have said they won't sign that G20 communique until it calls it a war. we can't even talk about what's happening in Ukraine because the language is part of the conflict itself. Is it a war? Is it a special military operation? Is it a conflict? Even that is in doubt. Um, Not only um, amongst the combatants, that is to say the Ukrainians and the Russians, but also amongst the leading countries in the world, the G20, as they meet in Bangalore. Um, the conflict is a war because there are, after all, people shooting at each other. I think that's pretty much the definition, but I understand very well why there is a debate and dispute um, about how to characterize what is going on. Uh, it is also a debate and dispute about who the combatants are. Is this a war between Russia and Ukraine? Is it a war a conflict between the United States, NATO, and Russia? Um, Is it a broader conflict or is it a narrow conflict about Donbass and the Crimea and Mariupol and cities whose names we have come to know only because um, the tanks go back and forth across the battle lines? It's hard to say exactly what is happening within Ukraine. Looks like there's been a kind of stalemate over the last several months, ever since the Christmas ceasefire. Uh, The battle lines haven't moved decisively. There is an expectation that in the spring, Russia will put more of its tank core into the battle. Um, Already, the Russians are using greater air power. Uh, Now there is a call not only for the tanks that have been released to Ukraine, but also for fighter jets uh, from, say, the United Kingdom and so on to come into the battle. Again, very difficult to know what's exactly happening um, in Ukraine. Winter is a difficult time to fight in that part of the world. People are anticipating some kind of spring offensive. We'll see what happens. Meanwhile, talk of negotiation has been set aside. Um, At the United Nations, there was a vote in the General Assembly. The bulk of the Global South once more refusing to join up behind either of the sides. In other words, a very large number of abstentions at the UN General Assembly vote, uh, not necessarily people voting for or against that war. Um, it's an interesting development to see countries like India, which had been quite firmly behind the United States in many of the um, world affairs, uh, You know, often lining up, even when there was a non-right-wing government. India lined up with the United States in the early 2000s um, in the campaign against Iran. Now India refusing to line up. Very interesting development. Mexico, Indonesia, countries like that. Highly you know, large populations, influential in their regions, not willing uh, to line up behind the United States at the UN General Assembly. At Munich, there was a lot of talk about the war needing to be ended. Vice President of Colombia, Francia Marquez, made a strong statement saying that there's got to be consideration about the climate issue, not just the issue of war in Ukraine. What about the rest of us and the rest of the world? Strongest statement came from Sarah uh, Kungelwa Amadia, the Namibian prime minister, who said that too much money is being spent on this war, money that needs to be spent on development. Very powerful statements made by Global South leaders um, at Munich. So that, so much so, that Emmanuel Macron, who is right now refusing to sign the G20 communique, Emmanuel Macron in Munich said that, The West has lost its credibility with the global South. Very strong statement coming from Macron, realization that cleavages have opened up. At the end of our show, we're going to talk a little bit about the Chinese plan that has been released today, a 12-point plan. We're going to come back to that at the end of the show. Let's switch gears now, not to forget another conflict, another war that's ongoing in a way, despite a military withdrawal, Rashan, take us to Afghanistan, a country in deep distress, and its funds now being decided upon not in Afghanistan, but elsewhere.
0: All right, Vijay. I mean, this is, of course, about the uh, money that belongs to the Afghanistan bank, which has been going through a... It's a bit of of an absurd case in the sense that there are $7 billion that belong to the Afghanistan bank, which uh, the United States somehow automatically uh, claimed or seized by virtue of it being some kind of global guardian of finances and global guardian of peace and security immediately after the taliban took over now it's important to remember that this seven billion dollars is the money of the afghan people and for the longest time the fate of this money was in a limbo at a time when afghanistan really badly needed it we know that after the taliban took over in august 2021 no, the West, of course, uh, in the, I mean, the, as planned, they withdrew. It was a complete, it was complete chaos. And it was not only military withdrawal, like you pointed out, but the immediate withdrawal of all infrastructure related to development, to any kind of economic work. And all of that just collapsed in one single blow. And the country endured a huge economic crisis, continues to endure today. And this $7 billion was vital at that point of time. And all this point of time, it was frozen for many, many months after that. And then what happened was that the Joe Biden administration made this extremely strange decision uh, where it said that half of that money would could potentially go to pay victims of the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers. And this was a decision that really surprised a lot of uh, people because people were like, what do the people of Afghanistan whose money it is? Uh, Why should this money, you know, what rights can the Joe Biden administration presume? take 50% at close to 3.5 billion dollars and assign it to this case. So the recent development is that a US district judge has now ruled that the US government cannot seize this 3.5 billion dollars. But of course the grounds it is said so are still uh, quite problematic so to speak because the grounds are not that the it has said that the money belongs to the people of Afghanistan but it has also said that. it is because it cannot acknowledge the Taliban as a government of Afghanistan that it cannot assign this $3.5 billion uh, to the 9 11 victims. So it's, uh, you know, uh, in the sense that this case is, of course, not over. But I think the fact that there's a district judge in the United States is issuing a convoluted order which talks about the legality of the money of the Afghan people and what rights the US has on it really says a lot about the global world order today. And like i said this is at a time when the crisis in afghanistan is pretty bad we had a report on it quite a few a couple of months ago in january where winter was at its peak uh, at that point i think about 90 percent of the afghan population was living in poverty four out of five households witnessing a significant decrease in their outcome and i think 28 million of the 40 million not people basically are depending were depending on humanitarian aid at that point of time and this was uh, say nearly one and a half years after the taliban took over it's not even the immediate aftermath of the war or something. So it's not that, uh, you know, we saw that after the after the Taliban withdrawal, after the U.S. withdrawal, after the Taliban took over, there was a complete collapse in terms of, uh, you know, st- structures which actually enabled aid to come in. Uh, there was, you know, there was a huge shortage of currency. There was a huge shortage of basic food supplies. There was no money to pay salaries. The Taliban, of course, making many of these issues much, much worse through its very extremely regressive uh, social policies, you know, making matters much more miserable for large sections of the population, especially women. But fundamentally, uh, in this economic crisis was one that was caused by uh, decades of uh, the decades following the invasion. The fact that the Afghanistan's economy was basically left as an economy completely dependent on foreign aid, and that is what continues to haunt the people of Afghanistan today. And in this context, the fact that you know uh, these billions of dollars are still completely Uh, You know, the people are cut off from this is really, uh, there's no other way to describe it but a crime. And the fact that, uh, you know, uh, the international finances, the legal system are so organized really makes it, you know, we have seen examples like this before. I think Iran has also faced a similar situation with regards to some of its assets. But the fact that uh, news like this, uh, you know, needs far more coverage and I think far more questions about who gets the right to actually decide on some of these issues. We've seen uh, similar. And even sometimes even more staggering examples, like the case of Venezuela's gold, which again, rightfully belongs to the people, the the US government basically endorsing a coup. See, you know, helping uh, plotters sort of take over, you know, capture this kind of money. So all, Serena, I think a very good example of the kind of complete lawlessness that prevails in the name of protecting democracy.
1: Yeah, it's a very important story. and, And I know that we've been on it from the beginning. Um, quick thing to uh, mention, 21 state attorney generals in the United States want to now designate Mexican drug cartels as terrorist organizations. Looks like from the U.S., Zoe, everybody's a terrorist outside the country. I mean, I'm not going to defend drug cartels, but, you know, the government in Afghanistan, the drug cartels, everybody seems to carry that 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 that, that designation. This comes at a time of an important case in New York having to do with drugs, Mexico and the United States. Tell us what happened recently in a New York courtroom.
2: Well, I think it's interesting you mention that because people are not, you know, when they're working with the U.S. government, they're not terrorists. As soon as it becomes more convenient for them to kind of acknowledge their criminality, um, that's when they can be called terrorists. And I think this is a very clear case with uh, this ruling that actually happened in New York City but has tremendous impacts on politics uh, in Mexico. Gennaro Garcia Luna uh, was found guilty in a US federal court of a slew of drug trafficking charges, accepting bribes from drug cartels. And important to notice, he was the security chief under two Mexican presidents, uh, Vicente Fox and um, uh, another, uh, uh, sorry, Felipe Calderon. And it's really astounding because he, was in charge of leading the war on drugs, but he was accepting bribes from uh, major cartel leaders such as El Chapo um, and essentially allowing safe passage for them into the United States and throughout Mexico. And this is really crucial because for the past several decades, uh, Mexico has been engaged in this war on drugs and hundreds of thousands of people have been impacted, disappeared, assassinated, killed all in the name of this war on drugs. I mean, it's, it's one of the worst uh, humanitarian uh, travesties um, right now. And of course, this also has to influence um, the swell of migrants that have been forced to flee their homes in Mexico. Um, and really, this ruling shows that not only um, is the narrative around the war on drugs completely skewed, but that the government under Vicente Fox, under Felipe Calderón, and surely under Peña Nieto as well, we're in cahoots with the drug lords. So, you know, they're benefiting from this war on drugs. They're benefiting from all the drug trafficking that's going on across their national territory. But who suffers from this? It's the people of Mexico um, who are seeing their lives terrorized, who are being lied to. Um, and at the same time, these are the politicians that are the closest allies of the US who are getting funds to, of course, fuel this war on drugs. Um, and it's, it's really astounding. And in response to this verdict, there has been a very, very large um, response, of course, by the government right now of Andres Manuel, Lo- Manuel Lopez Obrador, who for long has really accused these former presidents of uh, collusion with this uh, with drug traffickers, and him and many other people have called for further investigations. Um, Felipe Calderon, right after the verdict was released, he uh, published on Twitter that he never had any, any, any idea of. Uh, of these crimes that were being committed by his uh, chief of security. Um, he had no involvement, never benefited from uh, drug trafficking. But I think that's a extremely, many people have questioned this. It's been widely rejected. Um, and activists are demanding that these presidents actually be, be uh, investigated, be put um, on trial There was already uh, an attempt by Andrés Manuel López Obrador and the Morena Party to actually bring these presidents to justice. They had a consultation, uh, which was sort of thwarted by the electoral agency. Um, But there is serious uh, motivations by victims of this drug war, by the victims of the hundreds and thousands of people who have been disappeared um, to really actually take forward this, uh, this, this looking for justice, because what this conviction shows is that there was direct collaboration between Mexican officials and drug, uh, uh, drug cartels, and really this has to be investigated more. Andres Manuel has called for um, the uh, Gennaro Garcia Luna uh, to actually testify about the involvement of his bosses, of these presidents. So it's definitely something we're going to be continuing to watch, and I encourage people to follow Alina Duarte and seen censura to really get the the scoop on this as it develops.
1: It's an important story, lots of money involved, hundreds of millions of dollars of bribes from the Sinaloa cartel, very interesting development to see, but you know, it's a classic case of United States government going after people after they've become irrelevant to a particular story. Um you know, they're not going after the linchpin guy now, they're going after somebody who has had a history of being in that role you know one should not be i suppose too deluded by that give the people what they want that's the kind of news you get from us zoe and prashant from people's dispatch i'm vijay from globe trotter always on the beat looking to see what's happening in palestine um people's dispatch has a story about the situation in nablus um prashant every single day seems to be more and more stories of this kind take us to palestine tell us what's happening
0: Right, Vijay, of course, uh, the tragedy. another 10 people killed in Nablus for uh, in in the past couple of days. And I think the numbers are pretty illustrative. I think 60 people at least have been killed in the occupied territories this year. And we're not actually, you know, cross 60 days of the calendar yet. So that's really I think that really shows the extent of uh, the kind of murderous spree Israel has been on this year. And it's not just this year. We know that 2022 was <clears throat> probably the worst year on record. In terms of the deaths of Palestinians and uh, the number of the kind of attacks, the kind of raids that are taking place on a daily basis. Nablus is one city, Jenin is another, Ramallah is another city. Again, many of these cities constantly being targeted. The smallest sign of resistance by Palestinians, you know, then being used as a pretext by Israelis to sort of unleash the kind of military force that you would only see in a proper warfare. You have helicopters, you have artillery, you know, your soldiers armed with. Uh, you know, very sophisticated equipment coming and firing on what are essentially civilians who are refusing to sort of uh, let uh, you know, the, basically let occupation forces take over their entire locality. And I think among the among those killed this year, I believe at least 13 are uh, children as well, which again goes to show again, nothing surprising as far as the Israeli uh, record is concerned. And this, I think, is the second, you know, big massacre, or second or third big massacre we've seen this year. Uh, But again, equally important, I think, to also look at some of the global developments around Palestine. So, earlier this week, I believe on Monday, we had the United Nations dealing, the Security Council dealing with the question of settlements. And this was an interesting discussion because there was a resolution condemning uh, the expansion of settlements after Israel uh, recognized some illegal checkpoints. And the United States intervened very forcefully with both the Palestinians and the Israelis tried their best to sort of prevent this resolution because their claim was that if the resolution were to go to the US, the UN Security Council, they would have to veto it. So although they disapproved apparently of the Israeli settlement expansion program, if the resolution did come through condemning these settlements, the US would have to veto it. And by basically, uh, you know, holding this diplomatic gun to the head of the Palestinians, they converted what was the Security Council resolution into a Security Council presidential statement, which carries uh, which has no binding effect. So, what finally came out of the UN Security Council was a presidential statement condemning, uh, you know, settlement activities. Now, the important thing to note here is that the United States claimed this as a, as a diplomatic victory, saying that from both sides it ex- it extracted what was called a six-month freeze on all kinds of activities. Now, this oh, this technically meant that <clears throat> sorry. This technically meant that the Israelis would not, uh, you know, announce anything about settlements or you know, build any new settlements, do any settlement work for six months. But just two days later or three days later, on Thursday, the news came that the Israeli government had approved 7,000 new uh, say, housing units in the occupied territories. So, so much so for the six-month freeze. And, you know, the same media organizations which reported the uh, diplomatic uh victory or whatever you call it in the us in extracting this six month freeze also reported that it's unclear what this means since <laughs> you know the israelis had supposedly committed to that and two days later or three days later had announced uh, had approved and uh, announced the approval of these 7000 new homes and i think this really kind of goes to show uh you know the the one the sort of power that the Israeli establishment right now has over its much much more stronger ally we sort of often term it as a patron-client relationship or whatever, but the, really the question here is, you know, who is the bigger power at this point because it's clear that, uh, you know, the Israel is able to sort of <clears throat> uh, push the United States in any direction it wants and the US establishment due to either internal political constraints, ideological beliefs, whatever is completely uh, beholden to the Israeli establishment to the extent that it is a, it is willing to uh, uh, look like a complete uh, without any credibility at all for this purpose. But in the midst of all this, what happens is incidents like Nablus. What happens is the incidents of young people being shot dead, of minors being shot, dead, of women being shot, dead, of thousands of lives being destroyed because of Israeli occupation.
1: And then the neurological impact this has on Palestine in general. I mean, you know, 10 may be killed, but millions of Palestinians feel that the bullet was meant for them. A terrible situation. Um, You know, Palestine, United States, these are words that we hold together because they are held together by the Israeli occupation. But we're going to switch to another story, which also has the words Palestine and the United States, in this case, East Palestine, Ohio. Uh, Zoe, some terrible things happening in the United States regarding trains and environmental destruction. What happened in the ill-named East Palestine, Ohio?
2: Well, on February 3rd, a train derailed in uh, East Palestine, Ohio. Um, 50 cars of this train uh, derailed from the tracks, and many of them carried uh, hazardous materials. And uh, their fire uh, broke out, and the officials were uh, feared that this could cause a huge explosion because of the amount of hazardous chemicals that they were transporting. Um, And they essentially conducted a controlled release of these substances. Some of them are extremely, extremely toxic substances. One of them used in World War I as a uh, chemical weapon. And since then, there has been a series of, uh, of events. Um, authorities in the region didn't really explain what was happening. Residents seeing what was happening, getting very concerned. And, and of course, the, the environmental impacts, the health impacts following this have been very quick. Um, there has been mass death of uh, local animals, of fish, of um, livestock, and other uh, animals that people have in their area. There have been health impacts on the residents. And as residents raise more and more concerns to authorities, to news sources, more and more authorities uh, within Ohio and on a national level, essentially, were denying all of this happening, saying the water is clean, uh, we have registered no impact on the local wildlife. We don't really know what we're talking about. Um, and it, more and more people's angry, anger began to grow. Now, now we're standing at 20 days since this horrific, horrific environmental disaster uh, took place. Um, and people's, people's anger is only continuing to grow because the Biden administration has essentially provided no clear uh, information, no clear solution Uh, the EPA has essentially uh, tried to cover up many aspects of this. Many uh, environmental experts and scientists have said that the impacts of all of these toxic chemicals being released into the environment, into the water, into the air, is not only going to impact people's lives now, but this could have uh, impacts 10, 20 years down the road. Um, And it's, it's, There's also a lot of uh, complicity um, of the railroad company, North Norfolk Southern, who has been active in uh, taking away environmental regulations, taking away work safety regulations. As we know last year, railroad workers across the U.S. were on the verge of a massive strike and Joe Biden intervened and stopped the strike from happening. So people are rightfully outraged because it is these same safety regulations that actually could have stopped such a horrific accident. This isn't the first accident for this railroad company. Um, And in the context of all of this confusion of trying to deny what's happening, of covering up, uh, actually Donald Trump, who is uh, not active on Twitter but is active politically, went to East Palestine, spoke to the people. And important to point out that right at this moment, Joe Biden Uh, decided it was more important to go to Ukraine and continue to warmonger and promise more weapons uh, than actually to go to this site of of environmental catastrophe. And the right wing has really capitalized on this moment. Uh, Now Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg has gone and made many statements, but I think people are rightfully upset with both parties, Donald Trump, for actually paving the way for a lot of these environmental regulations to be removed and lifted, Joe Biden for giving such a lukewarm response. People are in serious danger. Their lives, the lives of their families, the environment are extremely threatened by what's happened, and they're not getting clear information. They're not getting clear solutions. So it's an ongoing tragedy. Norfolk Southern walked out of a town hall meeting that they were supposed to attend to answer questions of the community. Just extreme uh, disregard, negligence for people's lives. And this is definitely not the end of it. Um, And there's actually been another there's continued to be environmental disasters since the train derailment so i think it's extremely important these environmental regulations i've put people's lives in uh taking them away has really put people's lives in jeopardy and we're seeing um the the impacts of this
1: well as you said biden um left the united states didn't really go and and you know lead in places like ohio and other places where there have been these spills Uh, went to munich at munich there was an interesting encounter between uh, Wang Yi, the leading diplomat in, from China, and Mr. Blinken. Mr. Wang Yi said, Listen, what are you doing about all this stuff regarding the balloons? You know, these are $12 balloons that were uh, launched by some hobby society in the Midwest. You shot them down with half a million dollars of, of military equipment. Uh, don't use this balloon to escalate tensions with China. China is not interested. In the escalation of tensions, very interesting uh, development in Munich. Pretty strong words from Wang Yi. Wang Yi met um, in Munich with a range of different political forces, and the Chinese began to say that they are going to, on the 24th of, of February, one-year anniversary of the conflict in Ukraine, they're going to release a peace plan. Uh, Mr. Wang Yi then goes to Moscow. It's likely that they shared the elements of this plan with the Russians. Uh, or at least discussed parts of it, and now we have the plan. It's a 12-point plan, pretty straightforward. Available at the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs website uh, of the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The plan, in its 12 points, effectively lays out um, the uh, the principles for uh, how the world order should look. You know, respecting sovereignty, abandoning the Cold War mentality. Uh, resuming peace talks and seizing hostilities, and so on. These are basically ideas that emerge right out of the Bandung principles of 1955, um, tried and true principles, you know, about uh, the so-called Panch Shila, five principles about sovereignty, about mutual respect, and so on. The interesting phrase here was resuming peace talks. It wants to encourage us to remember that in February, March of last year, the Russians and the Ukrainians met in Belarus on the border with Ukraine and met in Ankara, Turkey, and had a discussion about um, about the kind of ways in which they can de-escalate. That peace uh, process was derailed by the West, which decided that weakening Russia was more important. This was an opportunity and so on. Well, they are now talking about resuming the peace talks. I was interested in a long section, two long sections. One, the section on the humanitarian crisis, the issue of protecting civilians, the importance of um, maintaining some uh, safe zones around nuclear power plants and so on. This sort of humanitarian aspect, very important uh, to have in the 12-point agenda. And then, of course, there was the three or four points which directly reflect Uh, on the the views of the Global South leaders, what they articulated at Munich. For instance, facilitating grain exports, that's the Black Sea grain initiative signed by Russia, Turkey, Ukraine and the UN. You know, that they say should be implemented fully. Um, They say that unilateral sanctions need to stop. This has been a long call by the Chinese. The keeping open of industrial and supply lines, you know, not permitting supply chains to be disrupted by this conflict. But the most important part was the 12th point, which talks about post-conflict reconstruction and says China will play a role. Very interesting that China has already pledged that it would play a role. Go and have a read of it. It's an interesting text. It's about time we had people talk seriously about peace in Ukraine and ending this conflict. A year are on um, no sense in fanning the flames. Let's see if we can send the firefighters in. In this case, maybe these 12 points Will be a good way to begin. You always give the people what they want. That's what the people want. They want peace. Prashant and Zoe from People's Dispatch, your indispensable source for movement driven news. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. See you next week.